we can just suggest as parents, right? <laughs> we like to think you have to do what I say. And our daughter years ago did something and, you know, disobeyed us. And we had this big blow up and, you know, she got punished and, and all this other stuff. But I told her and I said, you kind of saw a little bit of the pulling back of the, of the veil. You can do whatever you want. I use it as an opportunity to try to explain to her, like, in the end, we can give you guidance and tell you what to do. But the minute you walk out that door and go into the world, you're going to do what you want to do. I can't control you at that point. And I can try, but then at the same time, understand that those decisions do ultimately affect you more than they affect me. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. I don't want anybody to take advantage of you or, or to hurt you in any way. But, but in the end, can, what can I do about that? I, not much. Welcome to episode R052, Come to the Table with Sean McCoy. My friend Sean is a believer in Christ who works out his faith with fear, trembling, and a healthy dose of humility. When Sean decided to accompany a friend on a mission trip, life as he knew it started to make less and less sense, and the teachings of Jesus began to radically transform his mind, his heart, and his life. Sean, no kidding, is one of my favorite people on the planet to talk with, even though he's a Texan. <laughs> Plus, his natural curiosity, coupled with that sweet humility I talked about a second ago, make him one of my favorite podcast interviewers. In this episode, I get to interview Sean. He and I talk about his daily rituals, and it's pretty robust. Uh, we talk about books and uh, a mutual book that has really changed the way we view the world. It's called Unoffendable by Brant Hansen. We've also talked about, in this episode, theology. We talked podcasts and podcasting, Western art, and history. <gasps> okay, Sean also talks about the reaction he gets when he, as a Christian podcaster, explains why he has hosted all sorts of people from all walks of life on his podcast come to the table, including sex workers, atheists, agnostics, people of other religions, missionaries, war veterans, and oh my goodness, just an incredible diverse mixture of people from all walks of life. Sean's life and his podcast are built on the premise that Love in action is listening to understand, not react. Hey there, you're dialed into Reboots, featuring stories about people who have been forced to start over in life or in business, all walks of life, anonymous or named, high profile or low down, stories with heart, soul, and grit. Because knowing and sharing our stories is essential for living a life of joy, experiencing healthy relationships, and impacting the world around us in a positive way. Here's your host, Tracy Winchell. Hey, Sean, thanks for inviting us into your life today. It's a Saturday, and you guys are busy doing family stuff, and I just appreciate your time. Thank you. You're more than welcome. I love being here. So, so glad. So glad. Real quick. I want to make sure that we plug the Come to the Table podcast, and we'll we'll talk more about this in, in a little bit as we go, because I want to dive into to your why uh, you launched a podcast. I noticed you've made some changes to your website, and your splash page just 
it just about gave me a crick in my neck because love in action is listening to understand, not react. What does that mean? So it's funny that the antithesis of that was a podcasting group I was in on Facebook. I don't even remember now which one it was because it was so long ago. But uh, they wanted you to break down your, can you do your podcast in 10 words or less? Or can you describe the whole thing of what it is? And I always cringe about that kind of stuff, like that 30-second elevator speech. I always kind of think to myself, well, if that's all the time you have or I'm supposed to give you this Cliff Notes version, I kind of sometimes go against that and feel like that's, why do I have to do that? But then at the same time, in the spirit of of just trying to challenge your own shortcomings or your own assumptions about things, I thought, okay, let me try and do that. So those 10 words kind of lined up and they and they were and it did force me to try to to truncate, try to narrow down exactly what it is that we're trying to do and why that's important. And from that, it, it came into those words because that's really the the essence of what I think the podcast is really about, what I what I try to do when I'm on the podcast, what I hope others are able to do when they listen, but even more importantly than that, what they do later in lieu of that. Like, what do you do with this nugget and how can you go forth and do something outside of just the moment and implement that in some way? And then trying to describe almost instructional, but I don't want to be forceful. It's all of those things at one time, trying to get, just trying to, in some level, inspire people. Because in, in the end, it's this odd dynamic, which I'm sure we're going to get into that I love, which is around when you do that, when you allow that to happen, not only do you enrich the lives of others, but the, but the comeback is you can learn. You get to you get to understand you instead of reacting to just whatever somebody says for the sake of it or waiting to be reactive to really understand them and that's that there's a loving aspect to that. It is not necessarily the easiest thing, but it is the it is the example and it is the action you can do to truly listen to what somebody's saying to try to understand, empathize on some level, sympathize however you want to qualify it. That just says I'm going to pay attention to what you're saying at this moment. And it's not about right or wrong. I'm just going to do that. Dude, that's so amazing because that's what I've been trying to do the last few months. There are some things that guests have said that I'm like, I don't know if I buy into that. But, you know, unless it's something just horribly wrong, I'm probably going to be very careful in how I challenge if I even challenge because I'm here to listen to someone's story, not judge it. And you've played a big part in helping me shape that sentiment. You know, when I just was kind of just double checking that I was ready to do this interview, when I saw that you had distilled that down, man, that's awesome. Well, you also see why it's important to distill down because I can go on and on and on about this sentiment. But at the end of the day, you know, I understand that need for kind of, okay, what's the nugget? What can be the springboard to really understand what we're trying to do? And just like you said, that discomfort's okay. Yes. Um, I think there's a thin line that people may see that as kind of placating in terms of just letting somebody willy-nilly do whatever you want, have no standards, no line in the sand by which to stand your ground, per se. And I think that gets romanticized a lot. Uh, Somebody who is from the great state of Texas, I mean, the, the most famous line in the sand ever in the Alamo and the rest of that stuff and becomes part of our lore and it becomes part of our culture and who we are and we're going to stand our ground and we see that played out so often. You know, to me, there's a time and place for everything. It's been the majority of these issues, especially big ones. You know, how do you deal with anger, lust, greed, envy in generic terms? How do you deal with more micro stuff around 
uh, getting into arguments or, or disagreements with people that you love or even the everyday people. You always have to draw a line in the sand. And it's by listening to somebody and not challenge them necessarily just for the sake of it. It's a thin line between that and trying to placate. I try not to do that, but I'm also, I, I've, I refuse in, in, in the conversations I have, not just on the podcast, but even around people I don't agree with. I just kind of try to refuse to to make it an argument. Yeah. Because then it's, then it becomes a debate. And then, and it's not that I agree. I just, I just haven't seen it bear a lot of fruit. It's this, this mic drop, you know, the, the big taglines on social media, other places where this, this liberal gets owned or this conservative gets owned or this Christian owns this atheist or this atheist owns this Christian. That sounds great. It's a great soundbite. It gets people's attention. In the end, it doesn't really do anything. I think. Does not impact the kingdom in a positive way, does it? No, and even the world in general. I mean, it doesn't. I mean, our definition of the kingdom, it it just is whether whether people are part of it or not. And that's the other part of it is it's not just for for those that share the same faith or those that are of similar ilk or those who even necessarily like but don't believe what I believe. It should just be that way for everybody. I mean, that's one of the things that always throws me for a loop in terms of that, that knee jerk around. The gospel when Jesus is telling us to love our enemies, right? We talk about a neck-breaking moment, like, you want me to do what to this person who hates my guts and wants me to die and can't stand the ground that I walk on? You want me to love them? That's not normal behavior. No, and can I tell you a secret? I have looked and looked and looked and looked for an exclusion clause to that command, and I haven't found any. So if you find one, let me know, because <laughs> it's a whole lot easier to not love my enemy. No, very true. And, and that, that's why the inspiration for me is, be, is beyond just my understanding. It's even in that quintessential uh, journey of continuing to try to find that answer. Not, not that answer you're talking about, but just what would be the, the reason for that type of direction, that soft hand of trying this as, a, as an opportunity, you know, seven times 70 in terms of getting angry, blessed are the meek, you know, the Lord's Prayer, all these things that, that are kind of these subtle guides in life, and you start to play them out. And like one of my favorite verses is Galatians, not one of my, my absolute favorite is the Galatians 5, 22, 23, around the fruits of the Spirit, you know, which are these guiding lights around self-control and gentleness and kindness and love, joy, patience. But then the one that always gets me isn't even that list, but the one that the part of that whole thing was the last sentence, and it says, against such things there is no law. And that idea of putting those sentiments out to the world and saying, in lieu of that, there's no reason you can't do that. There's, I mean, even the most repressive regimes in the world of the most uh, tyrannical leadership ever have never, as far as I know, legislated against being kind and being loving and those kinds of things. And in mm. the power of those and the undeniable power of what that does to be patient with somebody and gentle and kind and the impact that it can make, it's it's hard to understand because the other side makes so much sense as well, right? The hard hand, the sword, you know, the 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 writing of wrongs from a physical standpoint, right? You know, equalizing the issue, karma. I got into a big discussion the other day with my oldest about karma, and that's going to come back and somehow that's the scales of justice being aligned by this wrong this person committed by having that same wrong come to them. It sounds great. It makes for a great movie, makes for great cinema and stuff of that nature and a great story and maybe even a song or two. But in the end, as, as I get older and older, I just still haven't seen it. <laughs> it's not the answer I see as far as what to do about all this other stuff. 
we already had our first mic drop and we're not even 10 minutes in. <laughs> and plus we went way into the deep end of the pool because that's what you and I kind of do when we get to talk to each other. But you do a thing at the beginning of your podcast that has inspired me. <laughs> and I had so much fun doing it when I was a guest on your show that I want to let you be my guinea pig. I've always wanted to do this and I just never did it. So Let's play an either-or game, if that's okay. Sure. I'd love to. All right. So, coffee or tea? Ooh, that's tough. That's really tough for me because I love both. If you made me pick one, I, I'd probably have to go to the tea side. Yeah. Like yeah. what kind? Well, so this is where I'll, I can nerd out with you quite a bit on this. I mean, I'm the guy who's into the loose-leaf stuff that knows Yes, is, there's hun- right, hundreds and hundreds of kinds of tea. Probably my favorite one right now is an herbal oolong blend that I get from... Uh, it used to be tea to go. Uh, but at the same time, there's a cinnamon, there's a black cinnamon tea that I get from my local coffee shop because my buddy who's actually on my podcast sells tea and coffee through his, but it's a black cinnamon tea. That's probably my favorite currently, but I'm, the herbals with a with an oolong combination uh, where you get the the really fruity, um, heavy taste. I'm real big into taste, real big into the that. I don't like the subtle, like the green teas that do are kind of a subtle taste-wise. I like the really kind of complex overarching flavor profiles of like an herbal and something or like a chai love chais when I'm into the spice side, like a chai tea, but th- those are so dynamic in terms of their, the spectrum on chai teas. Cause there's so many different spices and combinations that you can draw from that. It's uh, everywhere I go. If there's a chai, I try it just cause to see what their version of chai is. Mm. And, and if you go back and look at all in that, that spice of life, I mean, that's what, that was really the motivation why Columbus sailed, right? They're trying to find a shortcut to, to India to get all those wonderful flavors, you know, into Europe. <laughs> and so, and to let the sugar, I'm, I, I'm not a sugar guy at all as far as teas go. Preach on, brother. Occasionally, with a rooibos, sometimes I yeah. need some honey to help me clear my throat. Yes. And, yeah. and I love rooibos that are, that when they're hot, that's my favorite hot, like in the fall. Yes. Get a nice rooibos that is just, you know, with all those, you know, complex kind of deep, flavor profiles like what your cinnamons and your oranges and it's kind of it's mm. a fun tea fun tea to drink when it's hot for sure i'm going to send you some samples from savoy tea in fayetteville so nice yeah 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 okay no i, I love it yeah 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 cool yeah. we could man we could do a whole episode <laughs> on this yeah yeah okay I love tea. next one is uh you got three choices burger and fries a hot dog or a salad it's hard to give up on the burger and fries. You know, the health nut in me wants to say salad, but man, a good, good burger. Some fries, again, with, I think about, you know, some rosemary oil and a little bit of garlic on the fries, you know, maybe a little Parmesan, maybe Ooh. some truffle oil, something like that on the Ooh, fries. No way. Yeah, okay. And then on the burger side, just throw it in there with a whole bunch. Maybe you can get the salad. I can take that salad and put it on my fry, on my burger and Texas, you know, down to Tex-Mex, guacamole, you know, avocado, salsa, all your pepper jack cheeses, sautéed onions, stuff like that. And then if you can get the bread just toasted just right, a little butter, a little butter garlic on that sucker. And, of course, the meat, you know, something like some ground sirloin and just in the middle where it's just enough cooked, but it has enough moisture in it still. And it just kind of just oozes out. a little crunchy on the outside. Just yeah, a yeah. Get the, a little caramelization on the outside. Yeah. A little bacon that's not too crisp, but that, that you know, gets in there and just and then get that cheese on that melting point. Yeah. The burger and fries. Patrick's <laughs> Butcher Boy Burgers in Fort Smith. So good. You don't even want cheese on them. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's got to be a good burger. I'd love to. It's yeah, a I'd love good to burger. Okay. Um, cats, dogs, or other? Oh, that's tough. 
other there was a years ago there was an umbrella cockatoo that i almost bought when i was in the navy wow that when i came came into this pet store and this umbrella cockatoo would just lose its mind and come on my shoulder and, and want to and like want to be like on my shoulder and i was I was in the service. There was a whole pirate thing that in my head that went off. <laughs> I, and I didn't buy it at the time. One, it was extremely expensive, especially for somebody who was in the military. But two, they told me that I was transitioning from Norfolk to San Diego at the time. And so that would have been difficult. You know, cats and dogs, I do love them. We have a dog. Uh, you know, those are your traditional pets. They're hard. You know, they each have their, I think they each have their great moments and, and parts about them that frustrate you. But I'd probably want to go other and do it and love to get a, another thing is those things, Umbrella cockatoos and the macaws, they, you know, they live 50, 60, 70 years sometimes. And so that was another big reason. But I think it'd be fun to own one for sure. Cool. You you mentioned at least one baseball town. And I know you <laughs> live in a baseball town. So we got it. You know where we're going with this, too, because sure. we've talked about this before. Pitchers who rake like Madison Bumgarner of the San Francisco Giants and... Adam Wainwright of the St. Louis Cardinals, he had a great at-bat last night in a spring training game, by the way, or the designated hitter rule. So this is beautiful because you're like in softball, you're setting me up because you already know a little bit about. So I am of the ilk of the modern, uh, more contemporary where I think the DH, not a fan, not a fan. I think I think it adds more complexity. I think it adds more strategy. People always argue that it doesn't. My belief is that it does because it allows you to change the lineup. It allows you to change your defensive setup and not lose that at bat. And then the part that I struggle from a fan standpoint, you know, pitchers come up and it, it's kind of like this. It's like watching the kid that's not really good at sports get a final chance to play. <laughs> you're you're, you're kind of hoping, let's see what happens, but you really kind of know that 95% of the time he's going to look ridiculous. Uh, I remember Randy Johnson in 1998 came over from the Mariners to, to play for the Astros and had a great run into the playoffs with us. But watching a guy who's 6'11", who'd never bats, get up and put a helmet on and <laughs> swing a toothpick, it looked, for a guy who is obviously a very talented Hall of Fame pitcher, incredible. And at some point, I'm sure, raked like crazy, you know, when he was in college and stuff like that. But somewhere in the, you know, when they're fine-tuning their talent on that level, it's so, and that's the thing that always, always gets me too, is that the Rick Ankiel, remember way back in the day for the Cardinals. Oh, yeah. Was a, yeah. The guy who was a great pitcher. And He's trying to make a comeback as a pitcher. Yeah. They have the talent, right? They have the talent, but somewhere in the majors, you know, it, there's just not a chance to to do right. both for pitchers anymore. And it's, and it's a different game. And I think that's, and I understand the lore and the old traditional side. And look, Babe Ruth is a pitcher. I think there was a point in time, I remember there's a stat I heard years ago about, you know, Babe Ruth at one point in time was the most successful pitcher against the Yankees before he was traded, you know, or something like that. And yeah. from a pitching standpoint, and and obviously he can hit. We all know that. Back in the day, it was a little bit different, even into the 50s and 60s. And then I think the 70s is when, or maybe the early 80s is when they actually changed the DH. And I think it was just, to me, it's kind of a progression thing. It's an update. It's a qualitative thing in terms of the actual fan experience. I remember watching a game years ago, uh, Pascal Perez in the Expos was pitching against Greg Maddox. And it was a pitching duel in the way that the timing set up. These guys were going head to head. Both had their both had their stuff. And however the timing worked out, there was at least two or three innings that I recall where, where Maddox had a little bit of pressure. And that what he did was intentionally walk the eight hitter to get to Pascal to pitch to him to get out of it. Like that felt a little bit like he could avoid, right? He could avoid a professional hitter. And skip down to the nine hitter, and that was one of the moment. That was kind of the moment for me. I just went, yeah, I'm not a fan anymore because. Well, and then the other manager gets to go. Well, do I pull my pitcher to put in a pinch hitter? 
Sure. You're not going to do that in the second inning, especially when he's yeah. on. And that, yeah. and to go back yeah. to Randy Johnson, there was a, we were against the Padres in 98, and we had to pull Randy Johnson because there was a situation, I remember, it was, I think it was on the road at, at Jack Murphy or whatever it was a call column at the time that, I mean, if I'm, I'm trying to remember which game it was. It was the second game he pitched because the first game he lost um, at the Dome because I was at the game. And then he, you know, the next game, there was a situation where I think Osmus was hitting eighth and I loved Osmus, but he was not a great hitter. And there was a need to you know, move a runner over or a chance to score. It was later in the game, I think maybe fifth or sixth inning to your point. And, and we had to pull Randy Johnson from pitching so that we could get a pinch hitter. Didn't work out. And now we lose Randy Johnson pitching yeah. in a playoff game because because he can't hit. And who doesn't want to watch Randy Johnson pitch, right? Yeah. Right. Then you get into the entertainment value and yeah. Then yeah. all this, that stuff. It's like, okay. I'm not interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's my uh, long answer to that. You know, what's fun is that all sorts of facets of who you are came out of that, that you are a historian and we've, we've talked about, your take on history as part of your transformation. And we, we may not have time to, to do that, but I just love that your training as a historian and your love for history, you're willing to use history to sort of reframe how you think of things. And that's kind of part of your transformation, isn't it? Well, very much so. And it's, it's that reflective because even in history, like there's there was a thing when I was in college after I got out of the service, uh, which I was taking history classes, and it was the start of this idea of revisionist history. And I didn't become a Christian until I was in my early 30s, and after I went to, after I graduated, and and so I grew up. I was history was kind of my, and academia was kind of my thing, and logic and science, and this was a constant. First, it was this filling of the cup to give you a baseline for contemplation of things to know. And, and it initially was kind of neat to know from a trivia standpoint or kind of points of interest around, you know, when when did World War II start, you know, September 1939, and when was the Civil War during these, you know, 1861 to 1865 or so. And I became very obsessed when I was younger around these facts and factoids and trivia points and, and points of reference. And then somewhere in as I got older, especially in my early 20s and even in my late 20s, so then... I had this epiphany when I was in the service. I was reading a trilogy by Shelby Foote about the Civil War, and it really, really hit me hard around this idea that the, the chasm of knowledge, just basic knowledge, not wisdom, but knowledge to understand something like the Civil War. I, I became aware of these, the, the gap, the, the canyon that existed on the other side of that from just a knowledge standpoint to understand all the kind of facts about something like that period of time. Uh, just, just the Civil War in the United States. And then you start to extrapolate out that, what that really means. And it became a bit overwhelming because in your, your the level of ignorance that I had, there was a certain sense of pride I had around, you know, Trivial Pursuit game. Most people liked me on their team. If a story came up or a question or something that I could, I, I was probably aware. But then I became very well aware in a short period of time of the massive gap of things that I did not know. Yeah, I might be able to tell you when the years of the Civil War were, but down in the detail and the detail and the detail, especially after being in the military and, and understanding all the things that dr- drilled down to that, it challenged that intelligence. It challenged that that knowledge. And then going into college, this idea of revisionist history of even, especially somebody who's from Texas, somebody who grew up where it became part of the, it's in the water. You know, we learn uh, the state tree, the state bird, the state 
reptile, you know, the, the state motto, we, we, you know, our history is just, it's part of who we are. It becomes part of who you are. You know, these stories, you know, who William Travis is, you know, who Sam Houston is and Stephen F. Austin, Davy Crockett. And you know, the story of the Alamo, you don't just know it, but you know why it was fought. You know, the, you know, Goliad, you understand these things, you understand what they mean. They become the very essence of what you are. And then I remember there was a, there's a class in college and, there, there were some questions around something like the Alamo. I'll give you kind of a short example. The lore around the Alamo was that Davy Crockett and William Travis, all those guys fought to the end and were in, died at the, to the last man. It becomes part of the legend, right? It's something that we take pride in. It becomes part of our mantra and what we believe. But there became credible evidence that that wasn't the case and that Davy Crockett specifically may not have died fighting and was killed after. And there was a diary found by one of the colonels that were part of Santa Ana's army. And the professor was teaching this. And he's teaching this in a college class. But there was so much pushback in the world around accepting that as true, that that just couldn't be true. And it, the light kind of started to go off where our inability to under, to revise what we think, because we've heard this this idea for so long, we're stuck, we're stuck in this rut, and we don't even know it, of just this is what it is, this is how it's going to be. The, the wheel started to come off a little bit around that idea. And that was even before I became a Christian. And so, and as I, when I became a Christian, um, a few years later, that was, a, and as it continued to be for me, which is for me in the spirit of what your podcast is about. And to this day is on this continual journey of just you know, the wheels continuing to come off, you know, and come off and come back on, but just deconstructing, reconstructing what you are, who you are, why you think the way you are, recognizing some of the reasons that there's a, in, that, that they are the way they are, and then the re- really recognizing that the fact, fact of the matter is, there's a discomfort around that, right? Yes. Sometimes you can call it fear of the unknown or whatever. I don't think that's what it is. You just get comfortable, right? You get comfortable with the story. You get comfortable with the idea. It becomes something, and, it, and if it becomes something that you feel like you know as fact, then when somebody comes in to challenge that, it's there's a disruption there. And it's hard. It can be very, very hard. But I will say for somebody who's had such an, even more than, I don't think you would think a 180 is an adequate way to describe kind of the thought process around life, spirituality, God, faith, things of this nature, even what it means to be knowledge and smart and culture and people, relationships, and even the very existence of where we're at. I don't mean to be way out there existential, but even the just everything. Right now, there's a podcast I'm listening to, and I continue to listen to this one over again. It's about this apophatic theology where the entire premise is that that even the written word and even trying to describe things through that mannerism is 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 inadequate unto itself to even how do you describe God adequately? I mean, we talked yesterday a little bit, so this is kind of kind of overlapping a little bit, but you talked about the box. you know we we define the box and then we want it to fit in that. And what do we do when it doesn't? And how can we adequately? define some of these things. And then I look at the things that really matter. Now, we can argue the DH. We can argue, is Stan Musial a better baseball player than Joe DiMaggio? We can argue all yes. these points of... <laughs> well, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, no no debate there, right? Is it, it's okay to say, I'm not an expert at that. I don't know. I have my favorite, but is he, sure. by all metrics, the best? I don't, I don't know. With, right. But even those kind of conversations around... You know, what does that even mean and what's smart and what's intelligent? Even was that even good, bad? You know, this apophatic idea is just kind of dismissing all of those things. Anything that you hang on to becomes an idol. 
literally anything you hold on to as sacred, so sacred that it can't be changed, no matter really what it is, you start to spin off. It's like tornadoes off of a hurricane. You just start to go off in this direction of like, where are we and how did we get here? And I don't even know. And then and there can be some discomfort, but if we can get past, and I think a lot of this goes to what what you do, if we can get past these ideas and these these things we thought we knew, it's not a good or bad thing or even a right or wrong, especially if they're destructive or they're limiting, if they're not causing the, you to be the, the best you. And that sounds, I don't want to get into the whole business and, you know, success and, but it's more, more of existence, like being at the optimum, almost kind of like you're tuning something. If you're not tuned in to the optimum ability for you to receive, like a receiver or a speaker, being able to augment or send out to get the best out of what it is, then that's not happening. And so how does that happen? Well, you have to constantly, constantly kind of reboot. That's why I love your podcast. That's why I love what you do. I, I feel like now, especially in my life, that it's gone so far past just this retrospect that I feel like everything in my entire life is a reboot. Every day is a reboot. That even though we talked recently, yesterday, churning that soil and re- reassessing, and it can be a little maddening. Uh, and again, that's that word sounds even in- inadequate. And so I don't know. <laughs> again, sorry about the tangent, but it's no, 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 no. Because yesterday, as we were wrapping up our call, I realized that your life and even certainly what you're trying to do, and and even to some extent what the Reboots podcast does, it's right there. The Apostle Paul, Romans 12, 2, says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So that that tells me, and I never saw this before, we are to question the status quo. And I used to think I was supposed to protect the status quo. Right. Jesus kind of blew up the status quo, didn't he? Well, he did. And, and that goes back to what we talked about before a little bit, which is the part that I think that really bothers us. The part that I think really bothers me is that control. And you want to be able to identify, you want to be able to qualify and even quantify. I mean, the pursuit of science, and I love science. I think science reveals God more than it does disprove it. It constantly reveals the complexity of life. It constantly reveals the absolute enormity of everything, no matter how far we go down. I just saw an article the other day about they've taken pi out to some, I don't know how many million digits, right? And they're still like, well, we still can't get there. We still don't know where it all <laughs> where it all ends. And it's kind of like, yeah, okay. And, and there's a mystery to it. We're so focused on getting to the end, right? We're so focused on getting to that ending spot that it's, man, it's just, it's that same stuff we've heard since we were kids. The journey is really what it is. It's kind of what he's talking about renewing your mind, renewing that idea, and that that's okay. Don't get complacent. Don't get stuck in that rut, if you will, around what, there's a friends of mine that do a Beyond the Rut podcast, and they their whole idea is, they, what, what do you do? And then, especially when you recognize it, you know, part of it is if you don't know you're in it, but the other part is what happens when you are in it? How in the world do I get out of this? Because there's, there's a big challenge, around, I think, around there. And, and then when you recognize the world, and we talked about this as well, the world, it's doesn't want you to conform or want you to conform. It wants you to stay in line. It wants you to, here's what you need to do. Stay here. But I don't want to do that. I want to do something. Well, no, no, no. You know, we want, we want things neat and tidy and in a box. And we want these things all work out like an equation. And we want this to equal this. And we want, you know, A plus B to equal C. And we just want it to stay that way. Don't rock the boat. And to your point, the guy who came in, I mean, imagine ancient Rome. Here comes this guy and he's preaching 
the meek shall inherit the earth. Like, what are you talking about? Are you, have you looked around? You better not even be remotely meek in this world. That was scandalous. Well, it still is. It still is. Yeah. There was a podcast I was listening to and, it, and the way they put it was power has no idea what to do when it confronts something that owes it nothing. Something to that effect. So if you imagine, it's kind of like, <laughs> I always think I always tell my kids this. The irony is that if the kids understood that in the end, we can just suggest as parents, right? <laughs> we like to think you have to do what I say. And our daughter years ago did something and, you know, disobeyed us. And we had this big blow up and, you know, she got punished and, and all this other stuff. But I told her and I said, you kind of saw a little bit of the pulling back of the, of the veil. You can do whatever you want. I use it as an opportunity to try to explain to her, like, in the end, we can give you guidance and tell you what to do. But the minute you walk out that door and go into the world, you're going to do what you want to do. I can't control you at that point. And I can try. But then at the same time, understand that those decisions do ultimately affect you more than they affect me. You are on the line. Your decisions are going to affect your life and how you're perceived. And you, your morality should be your own. You want to protect, especially your children or even people you care about. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. I don't want anybody to take advantage of you or, or to hurt you in any way. But but in the end, can, what can I do about that? I, not much. I can stand at your door while you're sleeping and try to protect you. And that's what that's what the earthly world wants us to do. That's the, the, And that's that fear that I think we, we see so much of now more than ever that I think we're aware of. I don't think it's more present than ever. I'm not a big fan of the, you know, the doomsday is now more than ever. Doom and gloom has been around for since the dawn of time. It's just mm. been part of the equation. We may be a little bit more aware of it from an informational standpoint, but don't think for a minute that it's any worse than it ever has been. That, that's Oh, I think that the difference is the economy is built on exploiting our fears. And I think you're right. I think it's always been that way, but it's just in our face all the stinking time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we can't get away from it. Oh, you mentioned uh, the Beyond the Rut podcast, and it's interesting because I wanted to talk about your episode with Jerry Dugan, who is the host of that podcast called When a Warrior Atheist Prays. And, you know, that is a story of transformation, and it's an honest conversation. And one of the things that I love most about that episode is neither of you had any idea where that talk was going. It was no kidding, like a conversation with a cup of great tea in a coffee shop, and you guys are just kind of getting to know each other. Is that episode sort of what you envisioned when you launched the Come to the Table podcast? I would say in the beginning, no, but in the end, that's what I hoped for, because in the beginning, I just wanted to have conversations around tough subjects like like race and sexuality gender and try to have a conversation to show people we could talk about tough things like politics and not scream at each other. Mm. And then in the end, what I found was that if you just come almost without any conception of the conversation of the topic, and Jerry's was the one of the, was the first episode that I can remember looking back where I, I knew Jerry was on his podcast and just said, Hey man, I'd love to talk to you. And I, we, I thought we were going to talk about more of that, like starting a podcast and being a public speaker and some of those things. And then it ended up going, like you said, I wasn't even aware. I wasn't aware of any of that, to be honest. I knew he was in the army. That was the extent of it. And so to allow for the medium and then what it's become for me a little bit is, is kind of like that, where it's, it's almost like having as little of an idea as I can, 
around that topic. And then, but if I can just have a conversation, then all of a sudden it just tends to go. And sometimes it's, if it's authentic, I think, and my, you're coming to it with a truly a kind of a pure heart. I'm not trying to put myself on a pedestal because that's, that's not all the time. It's easy to do for a concentrated effort around something like this. But what I saw is this value of, if you give that person just an opportunity, you're going to hear their story. And you said that. And then I'm listening to this thing and I'm just in my mind, I'm just having, I'm going, oh my God, I'm like, this is a, this is a guy, especially as a historian, as you mentioned, because you look back in history and there's these groups of people or these, there's, there's these times. And I don't want to compare this incorrectly or, or do an injustice to Jerry, but I will say the Abu Ghraib stuff, the, especially around those in the military in military history who have, who do things in these moments and have these, these atrocities for lack of a better word and do things that make you go, how can a human being do that to somebody else? He didn't commit genocide, but genocide has happened. And where's, and how slippery that slope is into that and how slippery those moments allow us to get into that. And what I thought was such an amazing part of that is he started talking about his group was part of that. His, his group, you know, was the guys that weren't, they were known, but not known for, good stuff for lack of a better word. And it's like, then there's some, the military person to me says, well, what's good about war anyway? But the irony to that is it's kind of like those amazing situations where when we're at our worst, it gives us the potential to be at our best in the media uh, during a conflict, during a military conflict, during any kind of conflict, during a catastrophe, during a mass shootings, all these points in time where that were the, it is the proverbial, you know, what hitting the fan those allow the the extent of either side to be augmented into its heightened into its heightened existence. You can have depravity at its utmost level, but you can also have grace and love at a level that goes beyond the norm as well. And so, you, I think about uh, you know World War One, the Christmas truce, and the and things of that nature. I think about times World War Two where there were where they would have ceasefires and they would help. And Germans and Americans are different opposing forces who 20 minutes ago, two days ago, were trying to kill each other and willing to rip each other's eyes out. We're now helping with the wounded and bury the dead and those kinds of things, or just moments of grace are amplified at that time in that situation. And so for him to give us a little glimpse into that from a real time example, from an example from our, you know, kind of this, I think part of our country struggles from an identity side that we always believe that whatever our guys are doing is always the right thing. And I'm going to be I'm going to try very hard. I'm not trying to be critical, okay? I, I'm not doing that at all. I'm not trying to say that we, I'm not going to get into the politics of whether or not we should should or should not be in Iraq or Afghanistan or the rest of that. I'm just saying if you believe in something in terms of its absolute purity and its, and its inability to have rust spots or there's no way that could happen, it could. We are no better, right? We aren't. And I'm not taking away the sacrifices of those that served. I under, I, I have a little bit of understanding of what that's like. I know the environment enough. I, you know, I was never in combat. I don't want to misrepresent, but I understand the stresses of serving. I understand the camaraderie you feel with people. I understand the protection. But at the same time, it doesn't negate us. It does not keep us away from the ability to do something wrong in that same context. And what's so interesting about that episode, to come back to it a little bit, is in the end, grace and love still worked. They still worked. Mm. It even had a greater impact at that point when he has that moment where he's challenged. Like, what are you really doing here? Is this really necessary to be this depraved in your conduct? And to be honest with you, somebody who was in the military, he was a sergeant in this little E1, you know, wet behind the ears, never seen 
of the flash of gunfire comes up and you're questioning a sergeant in the army, in the military, in a combat situation like that, mm. that's, you know, that's some gravitas right there. That's, right. But for him to have the awareness to recognize that you have to give him some credit. And then I also think we need to give the opportunity to people when they reboot, when they restruct, when they, when they aren't who they were before, I think of the, uh, gosh, no, I'm, the, uh, I'm not who I was, uh, Brandon Heath, he's a Christian artist. You know, are you the same person you were 10 years ago, 20 years ago? If one person does one thing one time and your initial impression of them is this, and you, and you box them and you box them in, and now, or even that type of person, well, if they're from Texas, they're like this. Well, if they're from the South, they're like this. Well, if they're a banker from New York, they're like this. You know, if they're a Frenchman, they're like this. As soon as you box that person in, as soon as you box a type of person in, you've now put a governor on everything about that person, everything about that situation. You're limiting the ability. I think what God is asking us to do, what Romans 12, 2 is asking us to do, is to take those things off because it's limiting you. It's it's keeping you, without even knowing it, it's keeping you down. If you haven't been exposed, if you haven't been to a place like Guatemala and really been with the people down in, in the dirt with them, if you haven't done that, it's hard to know. I'm not saying you can't empathize or sympathize, but it's hard to understand that if you haven't walked, you know, there's a, it reminds me of one of my favorite country songs, you know, Walking the Streets of Bakersfield with White uh, um, Yoakum. Yeah, and, and Buck Owens, right? So, yeah. And, and they're not trying to say they're better than you. They're trying to say, go, go walk. And here's the beauty of life go experience that. Go listen, try to hear, and not from a debate standpoint, again, kind of not from a debate standpoint. Trying to listen, and it can be hard. And I understand it can be hard. I, I used to think Christianity was a joke. I used to think the story of Jesus. I didn't want to even hear it. The all my experiences with with organized religion, especially Christianity, were not good for three decades of my life. I just I, I always saw the neck. I did not see any of the beauty in it at all. And now I can't imagine my life without it. I and there's nothing more important to me now than that. And that's not a self righteous thing. That's not a be like me thing. That's a discovery thing. And I, the encouragement is for people to discover that on for them. Don't take my road. Don't take my journey. It's it's about you discovering that. And if you can do anything to help them, to help them go along that journey. It's not because I want them to be a Christian. I, I get really the evangelical side of that, and I struggle with that because I don't I don't like doing that. I don't want to evangelize. I don't. I understand what it says, and I understand that, all that stuff. I'm more of a St. Francis of Assisi kind of mm-hmm. uh, believer in terms of that whole thing. Because as soon as you start having to try to tell somebody they have to be a certain way, I, again, that doesn't work. And it's not even that's why I'm, I'm not doing it just so I can get a, you know, a scorecard for, for God to go, well, I got all these people to come to, the, come to the faith. I don't think that's the thing either. So, and, and that could, I don't know, it, and it's kind of that, I could listen to this podcast five years from now and be like, no, that, that is what you're supposed to do, but I don't. I'm just going off what I got now. <laughs> You're just where you are right now. It's a snapshot of a moment in, in time, which is, yeah. Isn't that the hardest thing that we we do every day, which is live today instead of regretting the past or living in the glory of the past or pretty frequently we live in terror of the future. Living for today is really hard to do and it's okay if today doesn't look like tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Again, it's, it's about fear. I think, and the fear is coupled by comfort. And back to that, I think that's a big part. Of it. And then when you, because the other part about it is, from a worldly standpoint, is uh, one of my favorite kind of uh, metaphors around this is, or experiences around this. Uh, years ago, and even now, I'm starting to do it now. I fly a lot for business, and so. Once you fly first class, or once you fly up in the business section in the in the in the really comfortable seats, once you've experienced kind of that, it gets comfortable. There's a you know there is a 
physical comfort to it. It's a better experience if you're the first aboard and you get priority and you're, you know, you're kind of treated differently and treated better relative to the experience. There's a comfort level there. You start to enjoy it. You start to like it. And that's going to happen. And that comes around power. And that starts again. One thing I've got from my podcast overall that I did not expect, a little bit back to your question way back, the overwhelming thing I continue to hear throughout all my guests and their experience is a lot of them, the catalyst for for change, a catalyst for influence, and sometimes a lot of it is not on the good side, as around power and around the abuse of power and around the use of power mm. and how that is portrayed and managed. And we think power, we imagine kings and queens and tyrants and presidents and CEOs. But the irony is, you know, a husband has power in a family, a wife has power, a mom, even over your friends, even down to the smallest of levels, there's a power structure going on. There's a power struggle and how you manage that. Because just changing, this is why for me, you know, who's in charge or who's steering the ship or, you know, who's who the captain is, Back to your fear, oh my gosh, we can't let, you know, every, we see this, especially in our country, oh my God, if the Democrats get the House or the Democrats are in the White House, the world's guns are going away, you know, there's going to be abortions every two seconds, the sky's going to fall, and then the flip side's the other way. And it, that's the fear around control and power, around those mm-hmm. things that, that we're, we're obsessing with this idea that's so far beyond in what we can control or in what we can influence, uh, I shouldn't say control. You know, how, how do we do that? And then how, we assert or we believe that it's all happening up there. We're in our own lives. You know, how, do, how do we manage the power that we wield? How do we manage the power in the way that we do things? And it really comes back to a quote you said yesterday about, if I'm not going to care what other people think of me, then I need to prioritize myself in terms of what I'm doing and how I'm, how I'm wielding the power that I do have and recognizing that I do have that on some level. And the irony, too, around that, that I've become something, again, awareness thing for me you know, for a long time growing up around people, you hear this a lot where there where there's a tendency or, or a cultural expectation around interfacing with people that what do I care about what my experience is with this person because I'm never going to see them again. There tends to be that kind of, you hear that sometimes. And my thought has kind of matured because I danced with that a little bit over the years, but my, my thought on that has kind of, has really changed. And that is, you know, the irony is that's the only chance you may have to get to interact with that person. You you probably will never see that waitress again. You won't see that person in the airport again. You're never going to have a chance to interact with that security guard at the hotel you're staying at again or just whatever medium that is. That's the only chance you have to influence them. Are you going to reiterate the stereotypes? Are you going to reiterate the experience that person has? Are you going to reiterate all their life experiences and you're just part of the they and they always do this and they never do that? Or are you going to do something I don't want to say greater or better because that sounds again that sounds limiting. As I see in the gospel of just being kind and graceful and considerate at that moment and as much as you can, relative to the chaos of this world. But that's that kind of changing of the guard around how I look at that and how I perceive that opportunity. Those are limiting opportunities. I'm never going to get a chance to see that. My wife's going to see me again, right? I have a chance to undo or change some of the dumb stuff I do around my wife, kids, and friends. But that person I may never see again. And it's not that you're placating them. It's not that you're you're trying to create a false positive. I'm talking about in earnest. Be authentic. I don't care how educated you are, how uneducated you are, where you are in life, experience or otherwise. You get authenticity. People get if you're being authentic. And that's all you got. Just be authentic. You don't have to be fake. I just think you have to just be authentic around that interaction. Yeah. And before we move on from this, because I, I, I want to save time yeah. to talk about your morning ritual, which fascinates me. But pretty often... 
we don't even know how to be authentic with ourselves. Well, I think it starts with, it's being comfortable with that discomfort. There's a book uh, that I, I read years ago, an author, uh, his name's John, John Aldridge. And he, um, or Eldridge, I think, and he, in it, there's a, there's a painting, I always refer to this when I'm talking to guys, especially, and it's called My Bunkie, B-U-N-K-I-E. And it's an Old West painting, late 1800s, uh, U.S. Army, two guys. And there's a guy on the horse, and he's an Army guy, and he's helping this other guy. The guy is his bunkmate. It's his buddy. And one guy is saving the other. And his whole point of that painting is this, especially anybody who's kind of type A, wants to fix, anybody that wants to be the one that's in, in control, constantly sees himself as the guy on the horse saving the other person. Almost nobody says, I'm the guy being saved, that I, wow. I, I need that. I need the Savior because we can't get away without talking about the book that you, you know, Brant Hansen and Unoffendable. You know, when, when you're given a gift like that, and, I, and recently I've had been given a gift of, of such a profound nature, it truly it was given something and didn't deserve it. It was profound in both its impact and all kinds of things, the opportunity and the and and it was just given to me and, and it was absolved and it's, it's the not getting too much detail, but just it could it could have been literally devastating from a financial standpoint, personal standpoint, and uh, it was around a business, around a, a partnership that I had that didn't work, and the the person I was in business with basically just washed it all away, just took it. And everything's equal. Nobody owes anybody anything. There's no issues. There's no, nothing's happening, you know, legally. There's no, you know, trying to get as much out of the loss as we can or that they can versus what I like, all this stuff. It's just a, a washing. And when you receive something that is profound of that nature, like grace from the cross and the crucifixion, when you get that, it can be a bit overwhelming, you know, to be the guy who is saved. I don't need help. I can help, but I don't need help. It's a huge barrier we have to let us let that down and understand that it's okay. It's okay that you weren't good enough. It's okay that you came up short. It's okay that that this uh, addiction, this issue, is has overwhelmed your life and you have no control over it. If we can find a way to create an, it makes me think about Brene Brown and daring greatly in shame, which kind of goes a little bit into the daily thing, because shame is this thing that happens that keeps us from that. And the irony of the shame is shame is man-made. And I mean that it only exists because we allow it. It only exists because we define the parameters that allow shame to exist. If you and I have a relationship strong enough, really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you do or say. If, if our relationship has been created, established, and runs, and the parameters are of such that you can say and do whatever, and it doesn't matter, Tracy, where you go in life, I'm going to be there for you. And it doesn't matter how far down the road you get, the prodigal son type stuff, that's not just some cool story, right? It's not just some cool story. Sounds good. Makes for a good Hallmark movie. That's not the point. It's saying, no matter where you go down that road, I'm not going to let shame win. I'm still, you're still welcome. And to use the phrase, because it's <laughs> to come to the table, I'm, I'm still going to welcome you here. I'm still going to welcome you in. And that was scandalous too. I mean, it was the dad, he was ridiculed he would have been ridiculed in that in that story because dad's powerful men don't do that. Right. 
and, and yeah. even in today, like you, somebody does somebody wrong, like right now, uh, you know, all the lawsuits going on with the college cheating scandals and stuff like that. And yeah. you pick your, pick your favorite news story. You know, the idea that somebody, when, when somebody, and you see this every once in a while, still some, when somebody shows grace, like the whole, the part that I think we need to get to is becomes this big thing on Facebook. Like, can you believe this person forgave her? The guy who shot and killed his her son in a robbery. She's forgiving him in court. Look at her. This is amazing. This, can you believe this? To me, the revolution, right? The, the in the revelation as to why is what if that becomes the norm? What if that becomes the thing that is just just is? Why is that the exception? Should be our question, yeah. right? Yeah. Why is that? To, oh yeah. my gosh! Because well, that is so antithetical to our culture and our system, and that would allow for people. I think more of this ability to say, no, I did, I did mess up. And what do I do now that I have messed up is really the question. So what is that next step? What is that next evolution in the chain, if you will, that, okay, so now what do we do about that? What is the answer now that we've all come, come around and we've all said to ourselves, I don't, I don't have it. I don't have the direction. I don't know what I'm doing. I've made a mistake. So now what, what's the, what's the criteria of how we react to that? We can go kind of one of two basic ways. We can, Shame, punish, and repress, or or grace. It's just grace is the other side. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that that justice won't be served here on earth. Right. You know, but yeah. Okay. Right. You you've got a hard stop here, but I'm fascinated by your morning routine. And I think that'll let us uh kind of do the unoffendable by Brant Hansen thing, um, because right. that's part of your morning routine. And I'm fascinated by morning routines. And for me, my, my morning routine, when it's working right, it begins the night before. So share the way you start your day most days. Sure. Well, I, I would say the catalyst for it is because all the things I've said, all this sentiment, all these things that you could say on some level we've all heard, the real catalyst for it is here in about an hour, going down the highway on the way to College Station, I could forget all of it. And it could all kind of take a backseat that there's this, con there seems to be this constant yin and yang push and pull around remembering this, not just during the sermon, not just when you read the cool quote, but how the striving towards getting this to be part of your every, part of who you are, part of your, my makeup, not so I can be cool or be right. I don't care about that. I want to be effective. I think about my friend, Adam Hansen. How do I be effective? How do I glory? You know, what does it mean to glorify God? We hear that all the time. Um, my daughter was asking recently in December about, she was upset because, you know, God, how do we get God a Christmas present? She's like, I'm getting presents and these are, these are cool, but how do I get God? What do we do for God? You know, what does that mean to glorify God? Do we just say how, how great he is? What's, what's the way we give back? What a way we recognize that. And to me, it's, it's doing what he more or less asks us to do. And that is you know, the greatest commands around you love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And then the other half of that is to love your neighbor, right? And so, okay, so then what does that mean and how does that happen? And so for me, the, the daily is to get up in the morning <clears throat> and, and, reset and make sure and kind of that calibration, that alignment, if you will, that says, how do I get this to happen every day? And what, what am I doing to remind myself of this? And it's not just reading the Bible just so that I can tell you that I did. And just reading it, it's it's really finding those things in the in the gospel 
that are going to help you with that mission, are going to help you steer, help you put you on a path literally first thing when you wake up. And, and not only that, from a word sense, but also there are a couple of the things I do physically. There's a physical nature to it. I think one of the things that I've been really attuned with lately, especially uh, in the last year or so, we talked about there's this big, a lot of these things happening, move, movement inside the the church, inside Christianity, if you will, between kind of Protestant, Catholic. Uh, Brian Zahn said it, you know, that when there was the big divorce, the big split, you know, the, the Protestants, we got the Bible and the Catholics got everything else. And that there's this, we've, we've, we've always, <laughs> right, right, it's, they got all the ceremonies, all the different stuff, all the structure, all the, all those things. And we just got just the Bible. And that's going to sound heretical possibly to a lot of people they might peek some ears going what are you getting ready to say bad about the bible i'm not what i'm saying is that if it's just the bible i've come to believe that the, the bible is not the end of the story i think it's the beginning it's the starting point and what do you and how do you interact with the bible and how do you interact with what the bible is telling you that goes beyond words and what that what i'm getting to is it's a physical act it's almost ceremonious going in and, and sitting down in the morning play music to stimulate. Uh, there's a calm app that I use and I try to find something that's kind of this auditory stimulation stuff that you start to, we start to look over and you know, kind of the Buddhists and the, you know, the, the humming and, the, and that kind of stuff. And we're like, what is all that? It doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems woo woo, but I think it's meant to, cause it starts to stimulate all the different ways that we interact our senses, our taste, touch, smell. It's not just the cognitive. It's the, it's the physical, the ceremonial, the touch, you know, the embrace that, Having that part of it in terms of in terms of what you're doing, I think it helps helps re reemphasize. It helps you f it helps me, I should say, feel the presence. And one of the things I do, <clears throat> I take some essential oils. This is gonna sound kind of goofy, but just bear with me. I, and I do it from an aroma standpoint. You know, smell is one of the most you know, that smell versus memory. If you smell something, you, you remember. You remember where you've smelled it. You may remember what it smelled like. What something smelled like. Smell is a tremendous, tremendous thing in terms of your memory, in terms of how you remember things and what impacts you. You remember the way things smell. And so I use, uh, I've used, uh, typically use eucalyptus because I like the way that it smells. And I also have, um, I use frankincense. There's a little bit of, and, but find something that you like that smells good. I put some drops on a washcloth. And as I'm, as I'm going through this, I use it to kind of set you know, I want that memory I want that stimulation and I don't know there's you know there's I've read stuff about you know the chemical stimulation and what it does around the brain and helping memory and stuff like that and sometimes I know sometimes I don't sometimes I think it just smells good but I do that to kind of set the table set the tone and to become a little bit ceremonial and, and let it remind me that this is a point to try to calm for me at least especially the cognitive side is just always in overdrive my wife's like do you ever stop thinking and unfortunately or fortunately, it doesn't. And so this starts to help me kind of calm that down a little bit and start to focus and really try to pay attention to what I'm getting ready to go through. So it's not just the daily routine, but it's also the how do you set that daily routine up? What environment are you? And it may be for some, wow. it, may be, it may be a sunset. It may be a physical place. It may be a chair. It may be whatever that is for somebody. Uh, and it may be even outside. I got into grounding for a long time. Um, I do that as often as I can. You know, the, the uh, friend of mine who was on my podcast you know, he's a, he's a dry stonesmith and he talks about how the rock talks to him, how he feels the energy of the rock, how he feels like there's an essence to it. Mm. You know, I've always been, okay, animals have souls and I are being right dogs and stuff, but I never thought about, but he, and you start, you know, take your shoes off and go stand outside and feel 
the life coming from the ground. That's, you know, dust to dust. I mean, it's in the gospel. It tells us, right? It tells us mm-hmm. we, were, we were pulled from that. Our Everything, our food, everything comes from the ground. It comes from that. It's not from some, you know, some plastic carton. I'm not, I'm not trying to be, you know, super, you know, econo- it's not about environment or economics. I'm just saying there's a disconnect. There's a lack of connection when you touch something plastic versus something that's real, right? A fake plant versus a real plant. There's There's something tangible there, and I don't know what it is, so in that spirit of, of kind of getting in touch with the surroundings and doing that in relation to the gospel, I think there's a dichotomy that when it comes to Christianity, we don't do those things. That's for those other people, those other beliefs, and that comes weird, and <laughs> right. We, right? We don't know what to do. We don't know how to relate. And so do what they did. I mean, can you, and as you start to read, and, and, and so as you start to ingest, you're setting a tone for all of that. And then I go through, I start with the Lord's Prayer. I start with that. Uh, Matthew 6, and I just read it, and I try, and it doesn't always work. It kind of comes and goes depending on timing and, and all the rest of the stuff. I try very hard to truly to truly listen. And one of the parts of that that has had a huge impact on my life is the right after the Lord's Prayer, the last part of it where um, it's basically the one that synopsis is, you need to forgive others as God forgave you. And that has had a profound impact on me. Uh, there's some stuff, I could go on a whole other tangent about that, but I uh, grew up in a with a mother who wasn't ideal and estranged all this stuff. And that was one of those moments where it pushed me to, to look at myself as a Christian and say, have I lived that out truly? And you talked about yesterday about identity and being a victim and, and kind of identifying with, I had to go through that myself around, I let this label of, you know, son of an alcoholic become part of my badge of honor. And uh, that's idolatry. It's just idolatry. That's not who I am. Wow. Yeah, right? that's not who I am, and I started to realize I'd done that for a long time, and so pushing that, and and then even even reading the Lord's Prayer, and this may, again make it's meant to kind of stir a little bit, changing not using the word Father and just use the word God, you know, masculine female pronoun. I know that everybody gets kind of in a tizzy about that, but tr- does it change the way that it that you see it? Does it change the way you see the gospel? Does it change the way you see God? Maybe you use a, a female pronoun mother instead of father. Is that, is that, is that so different that you can't deal with that? And as you know, I think about the shack, the book where he, you know, he portrayed God as a, as a, as a black woman. Well, if that causes you this weird, you know, if you're, if you're going to fight about that, this is where I start to argue with myself and say, why does that become my thing? Why is that the idol that I'm grabbing onto? Why is that my, why can't it be something? Why can't it be that? Are we going to limit God to gender and to a skin color? And that sounds like a lot, but that is part of this in going through the Lord's Prayer and really trying to listen to what it's saying and go over it again and go over it again uh, you know, each day. And then go. I go into Matthew Matthew 5, where it's uh, you know the Beatitudes, those things, the meek shall inherit the earth. And then I didn't, uh, first couple of times I read it, what does meek mean? I'm not really sure. Sounds like a word. I, I'm, can you dive into that and digest that? The synopsis is gentle. You know, to your, we were talking before. The gentle shall inherit the earth. It sure doesn't seem like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But then what does that mean? And the you know, the blessed are the poor in spirit. Does that mean the people that are not excited? And I think the other part of it too is it's not just reading it to read it, but maybe you don't understand, like reading the poor in spirit. Like, okay, finally I was like, I don't know if I understand this. So dive, dive into that and try to figure out what is it that's, that the Bible is saying. And then there's a couple of things I use from my um from my, the church I go to now, uh, our current for this next year, the pastor came up uh, at the beginning of the year. There was an idea of, he had a quote, and I had to have a picture from Kenny up on the stage 
And it says everyone ends up somewhere, but very few end up somewhere on purpose. And so that mm. is, that's become a big, because you're going to go somewhere. What is that purpose? And how does that guide you? How does that, and that, I look at that and contemplate and where that goes again, kind of like the hurricane tornadoes. I don't, it's not the same every day, but I use that. And then there's, uh, I use the man in the arena, which is a quote from Teddy Roosevelt early, mm-hmm. I think it was night from the Psalm in 1915 or right before, during, right before World War One or during it. And basically, and it was the inspiration for the title of the book by Brene Brown, Daring Greatly. And basically he's, it's an homage to those that are willing to get out there and try, right? That if you, and if you fail, that's okay too, right? It's easy to be the one on the, on the sidelines, the 2020 armchair quarterback. That's not the point. Get in there into the crux of it. And that's in, in paying an homage to those people for in, in daring greatly. And if you failed, then okay, but at least you tried kind of thing. And even for that, I'll try to change up the pronouns. I'll try to use a collective or, you know, and kind of maybe spin it a little bit. So not just staying static with what it is and using that as part of it. And then I go to our buddy, Brant, Brant Hansen, and part of it's a couple of quotes from his book that I go through and try to remember and talk about as far as that goes. And, and that book, again, Tracy, thank you for the turning me on to that one because it's become such a, a huge inspiration for me in terms of just how I look at things in terms of being offended, being, you know, how, to, how can you walk around the whole time if you're just angry and mad and offended all the time? And is that challenging myself? Is that to the essence of the gospel? Is that what we're being called to do? not is that what you're being called to do. It's not for me to look over you and go, is Tracy being that way? And it's easy to do that. And well, Tracy's not doing that. And Tracy's, she kept a record of wrongs. And, you know, it says here, because the one I go to next is 1 Corinthians 13, which is the whole thing about love and how you know it, right? And and I could read that entire chapter. And and I did this probably two or three weeks ago from a retrospect standpoint, is in one of the parts in there, it says, you know, love keeps no records of wrongs. And I, later on in the day, my wife did something and I was in my head going, Oh, I guess I guess she missed that verse because she's remembering something from before. And then, <laughs> and then the other voice in my head said, "Well, now, dummy, you know you're keeping a record of somebody not keeping a record." <laughs> Don't you hate that? Right, and you're kind of. And so I'm like, mm. right. So it becomes. It's not my job. It's not my job to make sure she's, you know, she's listening or she's doing all these things because that's what gets, for like a better expression, that's what gets Christians in trouble. We're sitting around going, "Well, he's not doing this, and she's not doing this correctly," and. Well, you just got to listen here. But if you if you take a second, to, if anybody read First Corinthians and they didn't know what it was from and what it's saying, I mean, it's just saying without, you can be all those things, you can accomplish all those things. But if you don't love, you're nothing. You're nothing without it. And it's just, and then the, even the, the end part of that, which again, takes some driving through, it's taken me a while to really kind of chew on, is this idea that when you're complete, at the very end, it starts to get a little wordy and can, you can get lost in it. But he's talking about this completeness, that if you're, when you become, when you're, when you're a child, you act like a child. When you're an adult, you become an adult. It's this transition. It's this, it's this evolution, for lack of a better word, or this transition into a different frame of mind. And so, when you do that, what does that mean ultimately for you? And, and when you do that, certain things can't exist within it. You know, hate and love can't can't occupy the same space. And then you're left with, oh, yep, faith, open love, and the greatest is love. And that's, and so I go through that, and then try to remember that stuff. And then there's a couple. There's the old sentiment, uh, old ancient questions about good, true, and beautiful. Current kind of the litmus test. How do you, how do you know what's the way you? How do you calibrate? Because in some of the stuff I've heard this before, that sounds great, but how do I know what's my, what's my uh, test? What's my, what am I calibrating against? And those questions, is it good? Is it true? Is it beautiful? If you can ask yourself that question about any kind of circumstance, two of them are, you know, pretty subjective, and one of them's a little bit on the objective, more on the object, objective side. 
But in the end, there's I think there's enough flexibility there, but enough narrowing of the interpretation that it's not so absolute. It's not just like, well, this is good, this is bad. What does good mean? How do you apply it? And using that as part of the sentiment. And then a couple other quotes, and then I read Oswald Chambers, my most first highest, and I get through all that, try to think about it, try to stay as close to that, all that kind of stuff as I can for the rest of the day, and then get up the next day and do it again. <laughs> now, how long does that usually take you? Oh, well, yeah. I, weekends, I can, it can be 35, 45 minutes, because I tend to get spun off a little bit. Uh, if, they, no. if, people can't, if people can't tell by now, right? And sometimes I don't get, mm-hmm. sometimes I have to rush, but uh, I take as much time as I can each day to stay in that yeah. and, and contemplate that. But then it's really That's about- amazing. It was continuing to try to do that every day. And it's not for me to say, oh my God, this is great for me. I, I, I think it's something that if people could do it, if people could find their, whatever their routine is, whatever their ability to stay in that, and really for it to be this this happy place, this good place to kind of draw from, understand from, be inspired by. It's meant to be inspired. The, the gospel is not meant, none of this is meant, because a lot of these that I look at are not even Christian quotes. I, one of them is, uh, Tom Sowell, who it says it takes considerable knowledge just to realize the extent of your own ignorance, and it has nothing to do with the gospel. <laughs> but, but you, but I think God's in everything. So don't I don't limit it to just like it has to be. This person has to have all their religious boxes checked off for for it to be part of this. If you see God in something, and it's inspiring you, you know, hold on to that and and use it and really stay in tune with that as far as that goes and continue to try to draw from it because God's everywhere. You know, it's almost like your ritual is preparing you for the next reboot. It's and it's actually reminding you that life is a continual reboot, so that you know exactly. It's it's almost like a drill. You know where all your tools are. You've got your checklist, and you just you're just steeped in the things that you want to be. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that, Sean. Sure, sure. Yeah, and and I haven't always done that, but. It's kind of like any other habit. You've got to start somewhere. And for those, I think, that are out there that may be saying, well, I've never done that. And so I've, I've done that too, where you're listening to something and you're thinking, well, gosh, I never did that. So just start. I mean, just start. Even if it's one thing, one time, one verse, one quote, I and mean, it's just one day, all, all streaks start the same way. All things like that start yeah. the same way. Yeah. Don't try to start a ritual with all of this at once. That's good advice. I just love this kind of stuff. And, it, and and the hope is ultimately that people, you know, I, I love what you're doing again. I love the spirit of the show. I love how you're trying to give people that, that confidence to, for them to go through this. And more than anything, if the takeaway could be, you know, don't do it like I do. Don't do it like anybody that find your way, kind of find your road and yeah. your journey. And, that, and that's what God, that's what the gospel is telling us, you know, back to Romans 12 too and all that stuff. So, yeah. And you get there by saying, I'm going to try this for a week. That's working pretty good. Well, that's not working at all. Okay, don't do it anymore. It's okay. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> well, I know and, that your bus to College Station is about to run off and leave yeah. you, but I just so appreciate your time, and uh, even more, I appreciate your friendship. Thank you. Yeah. It's comforting. To, it's comforting to know that there is uh, that you're out there, my friend, and we're chewing from the same dirt, and yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Love it. Chewing from the same dirt. I love that. (laughs) Hey, drive safely. You're carrying precious cargo, my brother. (laughs) Thank you, my friend. And God bless. Now, if you've enjoyed this conversation with Sean, grab your device right now. 
Look up Come to the Table with Sean McCoy on your favorite podcast player and hit that subscribe button. While you're there, consider leaving an honest review for Reboot's podcast or Come to the Table. Uh, those reviews help us know what you're interested in hearing about. Plus, it makes it easier for listeners to find the Reboots podcast and come to the table. Hey, that's it. I'm Tracy Winchell. We'll see you next time. Peace to you. We hope this episode has helped you in some way. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Maybe someone you care about might benefit from the Reboots Podcast. It's easy to share from our website, rebootspodcast.com. The Reboots Podcast is a production of Winchell Storyworks Incorporated, a company dedicated to helping businesses and individuals know, share, and live their stories in order to impact the world around us in a positive way and to achieve financial freedom.